Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Author David France faced the fear and reality of AIDS firsthand as a gay man, an investigative reporter, and a New Yorker. He was there when word of the illness spread through the gay community and was largely ignored by politicians, religious figures, and the press. He writes about that dark history and how a small group of activists forged a way out in How to Survive a Plague, the inside story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS. David France spoke at Town Hall Seattle on November 28th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. My name is Jason Plord. I'm the executive director of $3 Bill Cinema. And on behalf of Town Hall, $3 Bill Cinema, and Elliott Bay Book Company, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this evening's event with David France. This event is part of Town Hall's Civics Series and is brought to you with support from Boeing, the True Brown Foundation, and the Real Networks Foundation, with media sponsorship provided by KUOW-FM. Uh, David France is an award-winning author and filmmaker. His documentary, How to Survive a Plague, won a Director's Guild Award and a Peabody Award, in addition to receiving Oscar and Emmy nominations. He joins us tonight to discuss his book by the same name. France is a contributing editor to New York Magazine. His other books include Our Fathers, which was later adapted by Showtime into a film, and The Confession, co-written with former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. Please join me in a warm town hall welcome to David France. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. You know, I can't see anybody. It's very strange. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this kind of multi-year project that I have, I'm in the middle of in telling the story of the plague years in America, or actually more precisely the plague years in New York City. I began it in 2008. It had been more than a decade since the advent of the effective treatment that turned HIV from a mostly fatal disease to a, a mostly survivable infection. At the time, AIDS had left the headlines and more or less retreated from uh, from the national conversation. Just like that, we moved on from it. Over 600,000 Americans had dead, were dead by then, almost a third of them from just a few tightly drawn neighborhoods in New York. We built no monuments to the dead. We never gathered their names. There simply was no way to fix a number on the, to the casualties. Globally, they use the figure 35 million, which is a number that mysteriously stays the same every year. We do know this, the AIDS pandemic is the most deadly in history. And it didn't have to be that way. It could have been contained. We don't talk about the individuals or the ideology or the hate that allowed this to happen. And we don't talk about the massive social justice movement that rose up to confront the plague and the bigotry that spread it, and along the way revolutionized science, medicine, pharmacology, and culture the legacy of AIDS and AIDS activism is deep and far-reaching. The pills that were developed in 1996, the so-called drug cocktails, came to market by way of an entirely unexpected coalition comprised of open-minded scientists, desperate AIDS patients, and selfless activists, citizen scientists, by training an actor, a playwright, a bond trader, a hat maker, a social worker, who fought their way into the deepest corridors where research was being conducted, and they took their place at the bench. This had never happened before. Helping to identify new drug classes, to design research protocols, to enroll large-scale studies, and then, when their hunch proved correct, to rush to market medicines that now are keeping 18 million people alive. How could we not know this story, that the grim trail of AIDS is also a story of triumph, of revolution even. Back in 2008, that's the story I wanted to tell. As an investigative journalist, I was this movement's witness. I knew these people, not just the activists, but the scientists too. They were my mentors in understanding the basic science and my source for much of my reporting. 
So to refresh my memory, I turned to a large collection of activist videotapes that were gathering dust at the New York Public Library. This was the first movement that recorded itself. They did this out of necessity, as mainstream media was paying no attention. I remember that their cameras were everywhere in those years. HIV, which first appeared in 1981, was followed very closely by the Sony camcorder, which came in 1982, and they grew together as kind of parallel epidemics. <laughs> Reminded by the tapes of the vital energy of that time, I wrote a book proposal, as one does, and carried it around to publishers. And unfortunately, I could get no publishing house interested. AIDS was an old story definitively told, they told me. They pointed, out that they pointed to, and the band played on, Randy Schiltz's powerful early history of the epidemic, which chronicled the first four years. Randy proved that the epidemic was as much a political one as it was a medical one. But he ended his reporting early, before the advent of grassroots activism and the brilliance that came, came after. So deprived of an opportunity to publish, I returned to the videotape, digging more and more of it out from under beds, from storage units, from rafters and garages. In the end, I collected 800 hours of this so-called found footage, which was never really lost, but never before had been combined. The result is How to Survive a Plague, my first film, which I made in a style that has since been dubbed Archive Verite. And I'll, I'll just play you a little bit. I imagine some of you have already seen the film, but this is my entry into this uh, project of mine. campaigning for the lesbian and gay vote in an election year. A bit of historical context is necessary in dealing with the AIDS crisis in New York City. It wasn't until 1983 that you met with people to deal with the AIDS crisis. How do you respond to these criticisms? That is uh, falsehood. Please, anybody who's thinking about being arrested, fill out a support sheet, make sure that your support person knows who you are and what group you're in. Yeah. Um, if we end up in the tombs, is there a, like a queer tank there? And would you recommend that we ask to be there? There is a homo tank, and I've been there, and it's better than the straight tank, let me tell you. Uh, who else? Yes. Yeah. In the past, you've described ACT UP as fascist. Yeah, in the press release, you called them concerned citizens. And uh, I was wondering what changed your mind. I, I don't think that uh, you, you uh, can't use both. Uh, fascists can be concerned citizens. <laughs> Um, and um, I don't believe they are fascists. I think they have used a fascist tactic. Let us celebrate together tonight the end of the last day on which Ed Koch can tell himself that the communities which are being decimated by this epidemic are so weak and so divided among themselves that he can keep serving us this kind of bull****. <laughs> Tomorrow morning he will begin to learn the truth. <laughs> Jim Igo for the Treatment Issues Committee of ACT UP. Jim, what specific treatment issues are being brought into this demonstration this week? The municipal hospitals are totally falling apart. More than half the people who get diagnosed with AIDS today get diagnosed in the emergency rooms of our city. You're going to find yourself waiting four days in an emergency room before you get a bed. Pretty scared. Positive. I don't have much choice in that. I just love all these people, and I think that what we're doing is really right. And, I mean, listen to this, and look at all the people. It's just really wonderful, and it's worth putting yourself on the line There is no accurate diagnosis. There are incentives in the city hospitals not to diagnose people with AIDS, and therefore people don't get treated. We are angry at the way this city has handled this crisis, and we demand that Ed Koch exert leadership and declare a state of emergency. 
on the street now or wait? Those are the options. One. He says go. He says now. Three. Go. Go now, Tom We're standing here with Larry Kramer. What is ACT UP trying to say today to Ed Koch? We're sending a message to public officials, to closeted public officials, that we won't be shot on anymore, and obviously all the AIDS issues. I would love to see, like, more cameras or something, you know, for our own protection. Can everyone hear his concern? People die every day. Friends get sick every day. I don't... It's like being in the trenches. There is such anger in the community, and it, it is coalescing in a way that has never been done before. Okay, which way do we face, girlfriends? This way or that way? such a startling ending. Um, so How to Survive a Plague, as I said before, is, is um, made almost entirely from footage that was shot by the activists themselves, by artists who were commenting on the uh, political environment that they found themselves in, sometimes by family members who were making sure that they captured the, the lives of people who were almost certainly not going to make it, and many of the people in the film didn't make it. Um, and I knew many of those people, many of those people, and I'm in much of this footage. I, I um, purposefully used only footage of me way in the background at demonstrations, but my editor got very adept at finding me in awkward places <clears throat> and uh, making a game of it. And for for many people, including the people I went to, to to ask them to let me use their footage, just thinking about those years was too painful. Um, and I know people who couldn't watch the film and who stayed away from it in self-protection. Uh, um, but something really unusual happened as I started carrying the film around. The, um, there was a good, a sizable portion of the audience, and this was mostly people under the age of 40, um, didn't see this as a heartbreaking story but found it to be very thrilling. Um, and people would stand up actually after screenings and say to me, you know, I wish I were there. I, I wish I had lived through that, which was something that obviously um, uh, sounded awful to my ear and probably to many of yours. Um, but I think I understood it. I, th- I think they they saw in this footage the the idea of a really dis- a totally disenfranchised community coming together and getting power, and the idea of young people finding power and exercising it uh, effectively um, was just thrilling to people. And I I think especially today, excuse me, where people feel so powerless in the face of, you know, healthcare problems and whatever, all this this that's going on now with politics, um, that they, they, they see this as being like one of those great movements that, um, that triumphed and deserves to be celebrated as a kind of a human achievement. Um, but there was another reason I think that people felt that, and that's that this, this, this story was told through the lens of the activists themselves who were, who were really trying to celebrate what they were doing to encourage one another in their campaigns. And, um, and they, they appeared to have much more fun, I'm sure, than they were having, at least from what I recall. And there's, they were also shooting inward. They weren't shooting outward. They, and because, <clears throat> because I privileged the archival uh, source material, um, you don't see the government. You don't see what was going on. You don't see that kind of hostility and institutionalized um, neglect and disregard, the total you know, violation of, of um, the sense of, kind of c- civic rights for the community that we experienced back then. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to return to the book idea, to tell the story in a deeper way, um, 
to, to show what led to this. How to Survive a Plague, the film, picks up in 1987. The virus uh, made its way into our lives in 1981. At least those were the first reports of it, although people were sick earlier. Um, and those years, those first six years, were so vi- violent. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is water. Um, they were so violent and um, and just atrocious. And you know, there's a section in the documentary where Jesse Helms stands on the floor of the Senate and says just remarkably uh, stupid things. And people in large audiences laugh at him. They they think he's a clown, and they don't know that he controlled Washington. They don't know that he controlled every dollar that was not given to AIDS research, that he had that kind of power. It just doesn't make any sense to them that such a buffoon could have played that role. So I I wanted to go and remember the buffoons. So here's to the buffoons. Let me read a little section of the book. Um, uh, And I've I've just been very aware in, in recent weeks how much how much America today threatens to look like America in 1980. I don't have to tell you what those connections are. I know you feel it. I know younger people feel it. They don't know what the parallels are, but um, uh, I think they'll they'll recognize them in this book. Um, I chose a personal section of the book to read. Uh, By the summer of 1985, an affordable blood test for HIV was widely available put immediately to use at blood banks for screening donors and at anonymous testing sites, set up in part out of fear that gay men would flock to blood donation centers to learn if they were sick. Public health officials promoted testing as a breakthrough for protecting the blood supply and offering important information for the afflicted. But the new test engendered universal and unwavering condemnation. Handbills were passed out in the village and banner headlines darkened to the cover of the New York native. The test was wildly inaccurate. It produced a high number of false positives and false negatives, as demonstrated in scientific journals. A study in California found that more than 10% of AIDS patients tested negative on the antibody test. Their blood could then erroneously be accepted into the nation's blood supply to be parceled out by healthcare workers lulled into a false sense of security even more people might become infected as a result of the unreliable test. Clinically, the test was just as useless for the infected. But public health experts felt that even a flawed test would make gay men have more, behave more responsibly and therefore help stem the spread of the disease. But frankly, it was not possible to further personalize the scare. The community of gay men had already carried out one of, the his, one of history's most remarkable cultural shifts, broadly investing the community in safe sex practices as proven by a plunging incidence rate of other sexually transmitted diseases. 80% of gay men in surveys showed detailed familiarity with safe sex guidelines. Gay men knew how many of us were likely carriers already and behaved with great care in the face of that knowledge, even if it was unrecognized by public health authorities. Across the board, the community consciously championed love in its lovemaking. Unreliable tests were hardly necessary as a prevention gambit. Nobody who knew how well the community had already adapted would make such a proposal. The test had another major drawback. It would potentially allow the selective identification of gay men, putting the 8 million believed to be exposed at immediate risk for losing employment, health insurance, housing, and basic freedoms, including freedom from quarantine, For this reason, the test was considered extremely dangerous. Police officers in some cities were taking suspected carriers to hospitals in handcuffs, demanding tests. Proposals proposals for detention camps were gaining adherence across the country, and the culture, culture war against gay sex, still illegal in most states, had whipped into a frenzy. Atlanta's Metropolitan Vice Squad marched into the club baths, a wholly legal establishment, and arrested dozens of men there on charges of sodomy, a criminal act in Georgia. In Gainesville, Florida, the sick AIDS patients were actually being deported to San Francisco, no matter the cost. State health officials in California were talking about making results from blood bank tests reportable, 
converting a voluntary act of civic altruism into an anti-gay dragnet. In fact, quarantine orders had already been issued by the CDC for any foreign homosexual attempting to enter the country. This surprising news was only revealed when a reporter from the Bay Area Reporter, the native's sober counterpart in San Francisco, stumbled upon it. The memorandum of quarantine instructed medical officers from the Public Health Service to ask suspected aliens if they were homosexual and to hold those answering yes in special detention facilities until they could be deported. The CDC claimed it opposed the order, but was forced to issue it by the Reagan administration. Gay papers across the country reprinted the story, but the news was ignored by the non-gay press. Nobody in America knew the perils that we faced. Heterosexual friends and relatives discounted our concerns as overblown. If the perils were credible, surely they would have heard about it from Mike Wallace or Harry Reasoner. According to the Natives Washington correspondent, the Assistant Secretary of Health, Edward Brandt, said that, quote, such extreme measures as quarantine and mass firings of gays and other high-risk individuals from schools and hospitals have been seriously discussed within administration councils. The draconian political solutions seemed almost as serious and dooming as the epidemic itself. In enormous type on the front page of The Native, we warned readers away from the test and away from any research trials in which blood would be screened for evidence of viral infection. The National Gay Task Force and most AIDS service organizations strongly advised the community to stay away from blood donation centers as well. We were incensed that so much federal money was being plowed into the testing campaign, $72 million, which FDA Commissioner Frank Young estimated would avert between 50 and 150 transmissions a year. For the 8 million already infected, Reagan's new budget offered just 85 million in AIDS research funding, more than $10 million less than was underallocated the year before. <clears throat> this is a pernicious test which will inevitably call it cause incredible personal and social pain and damage. Stay away from it, Dr. Stephen Kiaza, head of the Gay Physicians Group, wrote in a piece that he submitted to the Native. Unfortunately, there are times when the information collected can hurt the individual. This is, at present, the case with AIDS. The solution is to be informed, to be cautious, and to be careful. In my circle, we supported the boycott unreservedly. As far as disease control was concerned, we behaved as though we were already infected, as if everyone were already infected. We would take precautions. We would eat well, sleep thoroughly. We would conduct our romantic lives with great care. This policy did little to offset our cycles of panic. There was no agreement on the latency period between exposure and symptoms, so perhaps safe sex would have come too late to save us. Privately, I focused neurotically on my own health, fanatically examining my skin for marks and my forehead for fever and my scale for signs of wasting. Then one morning I found what I feared. A mark appeared on my ankle, purple in its center with a halo of yellow and blue. I went deaf from fear. I raced to my doctor that afternoon. It's a bruise, she said, patting my leg. Let's do a workup. She palpated my lymph glands, swabbed me from every angle for gonorrhea, and drew multiple vials of blood. I don't want the AIDS test, I told her. Good, I don't offer it, she said. But it's important to know your immune system is strong. If it's not, if you're compromised, we'd want to start preventive measures for the OIs, the opportunistic infections. One of the red tubes would be sent to a special lab for counting my CD4s and CD8s, she said. She also shot me in the arm with a four-pronged TB test. If my arm got inflamed, it would mean the, my immune system was intact. This gave me something to obsess on while awaiting the other blood results. <laughs> I trilled my finger over the lo location for days until those gorgeous red lumps came. In a week, I returned to learn I enjoyed a multitude of CD4 cells, 680 of them, in ideal harmony with my CD8s. I was apparently healthy, a member of the worried well fraternity who carried the emotional burden of the epidemic without any apparent clinical reason. But the shelf life of good news was incredibly short. A rattling cough a few weeks later undid me once again. I raced back to the doctor in the middle of a driving rainstorm with the newest evidence of my seroconversion. 
In the waiting room, I watched as a nurse escorted an unsteady old African-American man past reception and toward an ambulance, blinking its lights outside the door. He took each step with a grimace, planting his cane after a few painful yards in order to heave his glasses up his nose. With his eyewear repositioned, a realization shot through me. I knew this man. We had dated sporadically and with casual vigor earlier that year. Only a few months had passed since we drifted apart. He seemed to have aged decades. He was like me in his 20s. But his hair had thinned, his skin had shrunk around his eyes, his chalky knuckle trembled atop the cane. I reviewed our history frantically. We had used the safe sex rules with precision. Remembering that did little to assuage my fears. I was doomed. A gentle man, a veteran of my bed, stood before me as proof. Our eyes met. I don't know what look must have crossed my face, but his became an abstraction of shame, as though humiliated by his own victimhood. He looked away. Let's go, he begged the nurse, and fix, fixating on my own fate, I let him pick his way into the storm without a word of condolence. Nauseated and panic-stricken, I wandered back to the native office with a prescription for antibiotics for the cough. It was a July afternoon, humid and close even after the rain passed. In the triangular park across from the office, a crowd had pushed around a squat newspaper vending box. The afternoon New York Post had just been delivered, and on its front page was a pair of pictures of the movie star Rock Hudson, one dreamy in his 30s, the other looking hideously frail. I knew he had been sick after appearing ashen and hollow-cheeked at a press conference with Doris Day. His well-being was the subject of open and wild speculation. He did little to assuage this by explaining, by explaining it away unconvincingly as either a liver disorder, a flu, or some intestinal bug that he had picked up in Israel. Earlier in the week on the local news, the irrepressible television anchor Sue Simmons openly wondered, just what is wrong with Rock Hudson? He had raced to the American hospital in Paris for secret treatment for fatigue and malaise, she told us. And while there, he took a phone call from his old friend Ronald Reagan, wishing him well. At the office, we wondered if he was chasing the new experimental AIDS drug, HPA-23. Of course, we wished it was AIDS. We wished the worst for poor Rock Hudson. We had also wished, wished catastrophe for Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan, both of whom had received blood transfusions after recent foiled assassination attempts. We prayed for a day when the disease struck someone who mattered, prayed for a weaponizing of AIDS, and when, it fi when I finally saw the Post headline, I knew that our terrible wishes had, had finally come true. It read, Rock Hudson has AIDS, and he's known for a year. A friend of Elizabeth Taylor and Carol Burnett, Ronald Reagan's guest in the White House, like a brother to the First Lady, Rock Hudson stepped forward to tell the world that he had the gay plague. What the article didn't say was that becoming the face of AIDS hadn't been his idea. The crush of reporters at the American hospital's doorstep in Paris had grown so overwhelming that officials entered his room with an ultimatum. Either Hudson would announce his diagnosis or the hospital would do it for him. With a pause, Hudson waved a hand and with a thin voice said, who cares, go ahead. We've hidden it for a year, what's the point? His team produced a press release. As Hudson stared stonily at his publicist, she sat at the foot of his bed and read him a draft. Mr. Rock Hudson has acquired immune deficiency syndrome, she recited. He came to Paris to consult with a specialist in this disease. Prior to meeting his specialist, he became very ill at the Ritz Hotel, and his business manager, Mark Miller, advised him from California to enter the American hospital immediately. Hudson listened. Okay, he said. Go out and give it to the dogs. The news tour around the globe, igniting gossip in most known languages and sending printing presses into overdrive, the New York Post's commuter edition was on sale within hours. I bought the paper, brought that paper to the newsroom, and our collective feeling was clear. At last. Patrick Merla, the native's editor, imagined the influence that Hudson's notoriety could bring to funding and to public awareness. It took only a few days to see the evidence of that. 
In my native column on the revelation, I wrote about the massive number of developments on the AIDS front in the past week, from a broken dam of media coverage to sudden voices of urgency at the research bench. Television anchors expressed amazement that an American citizen, a taxpaying, upstanding, and beloved American citizen, was forced to go to France to seek medical treatment that his own government was unable or unwilling to offer him at home. Reporters flew to Paris only to discover that 400 other Americans were pleading for health care there. In the limelight, Health Secretary Margaret Heckler sent her chief of staff to the morning shows to announce that HPA 23 would now be available in the U.S. in under three weeks on a compassionate use basis. Even Reagan was prodded into action without breaking his public silence on mentioning AIDS, He spontaneously increased his AIDS budget request by 47%, and Congress, not to be outdone, threw in $70 million more, bringing AIDS spending now up to $190 million for the coming year. Still insufficient, but a sign that the disease was finally on the public agenda. Everyone in America now knew someone with the disease. On September 17th, after more than 6,000 young Americans had died of AIDS, after the disease had eclipsed all other causes of death for New York men in their 20s and 30s, Ronald Reagan finally discussed the epidemic in public. It came during a regularly scheduled press conference, Reagan's 30th since the first AIDS death was reported by the CDC. Helen Thomas, the UPI bureau chief, already esteemed as the dean of the White House press corps, broke the logjam. Mr. President, she began, the nation's best-known AIDS scientist, says the time has now come to boost existing research into what he called a minor moonshot program to attack this AIDS epidemic that has struck fear into the nation's health workers and even its school children. Would you support a massive government research program against AIDS like the one that President Nixon launched against cancer? Reagan wiggled his head genially. I have been supporting it for more than four years now, he said. It's been one of the top priorities for us, and over the last four years, and including what we have in the budget for 86, it will amount to over a half billion dollars that we've provided for research on AIDS, in addition to what I'm sure other medical groups are doing. He smiled at reporters as they jotted down his specious dollar figure. So this is a top priority for us, he continued. Yes, there's no question about the seriousness of this and the need to find an answer. Reagan's small and defensive comment bridged the void between our tragedy and the American people nonetheless. He acknowledged, his acknowledgement of the plague's seriousness was monumental and long overdue. Rock Hudson's fight for life had moved the mountain. The screen idol never appeared in public again. After his condition stabilized in Paris, he chartered a 747 and returned to Los Angeles on a stretcher, accompanied by a retinue of medical experts. He spent the next 26 days at the UCLA Medical Center fighting various infections. Thereafter, he returned to the castle, as he called his home in Beverly Hills, to be among friends. He prepared a statement that Burt Burt Lancaster read on his behalf. I'm not happy that I have AIDS, but if this is helping others, I can at least know that my own misfortune has had some positive worth. I have also been told that the media coverage of my own situation has brought enormous international attention to the gravity of this disease in all areas of humanity and is leading to more research, more contributions of funds, and a better understanding of the disease than ever before. Only a few weeks later, weighing barely 120 pounds and easily confused, Rock Hudson was propped up in his bed in blue pajamas and alone in his room when the life slid out of him. I'll leave it at that. Um, the, the book comes out tomorrow, and there was great concern about it following on the heels of a wild political campaign and that it would um, be flashing back to a period of time that was long forgotten. But as I reread this, this history, I feel that it's probably never been more urgent and necessary. So I present this to you.
So as we mentioned, there are mics on that side and this side. If you have a question, walk on up here. Um, uh, I have a question, rather uh, just a practical question. Are, are, is there plans for partnering the book with, with the film and, and having that be a compendium that goes to schools or other, you know, public places? Um, I would hope so. You know, the, the film has <clears throat> surprisingly been adopted on college campuses across the country, and I know it because I, you know, I have a Twitter account, and I see what's going on, and people calling one another to screenings of the film, and it's very rewarding. Um, you know, there is no history, complete history, of the plague in, in the United States. Uh, there has been no book to teach. Um, had, uh, the, and the band played on, which is a very good book, um, is just you know woefully dated, and it also made some errors that I tried to correct in in my book. Hmm. Randy, because he w- lived on the West Coast, cast the epidemic as a, a kind of a West Coast phenomenon when New York was the original epicenter for the disease and um, remained the epicenter for over a decade, yeah. and was the birthplace of of all of the activism that um, that interacted with the establishment that brought an end to the plague years. Um, Randy, unfortunately, didn't live long enough to be able to tell those stories. I'm sure he, he would have corrected them himself. Right. Um, he died of AIDS. Um, but now, you know, I like to think that I've... I, I was hoping as I was writing this that it, it would become a tool for teaching this kind of in, in academia in any other setting, but I really, I really did write it for people who had no idea. We have a um, question over here. Hi, thank you. Hi. Um, so I am definitely one of those young people uh, who has found um, a sense of oddly comfort in um, learning about this history. Um, I'm not foolish enough to wish that I lived through it. I'm having a hard enough time living through mm-hmm. the bigotry and discrimination and scariness of our government currently to want to do that. Um, but I was just hoping that um, you... It, it, I was wondering if you had thought of any lessons or any um, anything to share for... for um, minority communities who might be facing a similar, you know, you never want to play the suffering Olympics, but a similar scary situation in which it appears that our government is potentially going to be as um, um, dismissive or actively um, perpetrating harm towards us. So I would be curious to hear your thoughts. Um, well, that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, uh, what's the lesson? Um, the, the, I think the, that ACT UP, in its activism, created a new blueprint for activism. It wasn't, it wasn't created out of whole cloth. It was built on the, the history and experiences of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement. Uh, but they brought their own innovations to it. And in, in that way, studying ACT, ACT UP can be a blueprint for other movements. Um, I do know that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has reached into that history and uh, to try to learn those lessons. And there, there are people who were in ACT UP or in the tradition of AIDS activism who are, are in leadership in Black Lives Matter, so that's pretty cool. Um, the, the, the documentary was used as, as a teaching tool in Russia, in Moscow, during the pro-democracy movement there three or four years ago, um, it's, it's exportable. The, the idea of, of what this group of people did through self-empowerment and self-education and through a, a clever strategy, it can be exported to other movements and, um, um, and, and should be. Um, and especially now. I mean, you're right to point out that uh, people are organizing already because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we know we're going to need to be, to be together for it. And I want to point out one other thing. You see it, you see it in the documentary that the, 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 you see all those crowded rooms. 
Those crowded rooms uh, were essential to um, how they did what they did. And I, I worry that uh, social media makes us feel like we're in a crowded room, but we're not really engaged in, a, in that same kind of, um, you know, kind of galvanizing conversation, that people challenging one another's ideas and improving their ideas and acting collectively to adopt those ideas and strategize about how to implement them. There's something about getting together that is, I think, an essential part of any sort of effective political movement. So, get a room. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I wanted to know what your thought of, is of PrEP, which is the medication a lot of gay men are taking to prevent um, becoming HIV positive. What's your view in terms of the pluses or the minuses of this medication? I'm very much in favor of it. Does everybody know what PrEP is? So, um, so one of the things that, um, that they discovered, they discovered a lot about these drugs that that you see developed in the film, and the, the book is really all about the trajectory toward the, the discovery of those drugs. One is that when, you, when you're on those drugs, if you have HIV and you take the drug as treatment, uh, it suppresses your vir- viral load to the point where you're uh, effectively incapable of transmitting the virus. So it's treatment as prevention, fantastic. You know, uh, it took them a long time to realize that that was uh, possible. Um, and then they discovered that the drugs could be used post-infection as a kind of a you know, morning after some disaster on a Saturday night uh, involving too much liquor or broken condoms or whatever, um, that it was effective at blocking transmission post-exposure. And now what they have, have um, proved is that if you take the pills pre-exposure, um, much like um, a young heterosexual girl might take a birth control pill, um, it blocks transmission. So, uh, and it's, it is somewhat controversial uh, because we're suggesting that um, some strong medications be given to some healthy people. But uh, here's what we know about HIV transmission, that the majority of new infections are in people between the ages of 14 and 22. Um, we're, we're not reaching them with other prevention methods. That's the same age that we give young girls birth control pills or, or they seek them out themselves. It's, when it's, it's the age where you really need every tool available to you to prevent um, uh, you know, some disaster from happening. And so I'm really in favor of it. You know, I, I think that the model really is that people take the pill for you know, a period of time in, in, in their sexual lives um, and that um, after a period of time, it becomes less important. I know certainly at my age, it would be less important. Although I know many people who are in their 50s who are, um, who are starting on PrEP. <laughs> I'm a volunteer over here. <clears throat> um, uh, so I'm in favor of it. I really think it's a great idea. And we need to do something to stop the transmission rates. They've been pretty much the same since 1996. And um, we only now start seeing them going down in the last year or so. The governments, and nobody wants to promote it. They all feel like it's, you know, um, it, it's promoting the wrong thing. Everybody's afraid of it. Uh, there's an AIDS organization in L.A. that's opposed to it in a maniacal way. And, um, but I think we should take every tool that we can possibly uh, find to try to you know, prevent young kids from getting sick. Do you, do you attribute that, the, the recent decline to, to PrEP? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no data on it, um, um, but yeah, I do, because yeah. we, we have the concomitant kind of uh, increase in other infections, right? So we see a, we see a, a, a surge now in among young trans and gay kids um, in syphilis and gonorrhea. It means and, and a lower incidence rate of transmission for HIV. So it means that the condom's not there, but nor are they getting the HIV. Hi. Hi. It's a setup question. Okay. Tell tell us a little bit about uh, Public Square Films and what you're trying to do with Public Square Films, and tell us about your most recent project. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Public Square Films is the production company that I formed um, to make How to Survive a Plague um, with my. Um, Filmmaking partner Joy Thompson, who's the executive producer of that film and um, and our current film, we wanted to make 
stories about queer people that are empowering and that are um, that are American stories. I guess that's that's the, the way I think of them. You know that 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 they're not. I, I didn't want to make queer stories and tell queer stories for que- the queer community necessarily. I wanted them to be. I wanted to find the value and um, legacy of the, these amazing moments in our own history, and and present them um, as part of the canon of uh, American life and um, and human life. And that's what I tried to do with How to Survive a Plague. Our our newest film is about the original transgender activists in New York, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, um, two seminal and towering figures about whose stories have never never really been told, um, and certainly not in film format. And um, so we're trying to do the same there. I mean, two, two people who are mostly homeless, who conceived of the idea, they're the first people to come up with the idea that there's a cultural uniqueness to the transgender experience. They didn't call it that at the time. They were drag queens, transvestites. But they formed the first trans, right or, trans rights organization in 1970. They called it STAR, which stood for Street Transvestites Action Revolutionaries. <laughs> they had goals. They had vision. And, and they were truly radical. They, really, they thought that the uh, queer movement should link up with the black power movement. And they actually went to the the um, People's Revolutionary Convention in Philadelphia representing uh, transvestites and, um, and cornered Huey Newton to talk to him about the parallel connections between what they were doing and what he was doing. Um, Sylvia was a member of the Young Lords, another kind of revolutionary organization from the time. So they, 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 had, they had big plans. And um, I guess all of those revolutionary plans hit the shoals somewhere there in the 70s. Um, and they had a difficult life thereafter. But I wanted to tell their stories as these kind of these seminal tales, that kind of the origin story of, 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 of how we added the T to the LG and the B um, um, and the Q and the I and the, all the other letters. And, uh, and it was because of these two people who were really amazing. Oh, there's something. Can you tell me, share your thoughts of um, how you see visual artists um, bringing awareness um, to the movement? Uh, Because I'm trying to think of other parallels where they've been, where their voice has been so strong, and um, I don't know. Can you share? They were. Visual artists were so essential to AIDS activism. Um, especially in this period, 1986 and forward, when a kind of a new generation of people were being impacted by the by the virus, um, and they were enraged. Um, they they had a little more feeling of their own kind of entitlement, and were a little more shocked than uh, people who were more like Larry Kramer's age, a kind of an earlier generation. They were more shocked that they weren't getting medical care. It just didn't make any sense to them, and. Um, uh, and the first of the voices that r- responded to that were artists. Um, and in fact, the, 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 the image of the pink triangle and the words silence equals death, that, was, that predates this grassroots and social justice activism period in the epidemic by a number of months. Um, and it's credited with having really stirred the mood in New York, anyway, for... Um, for wanting to do something greater than, than what they were doing. And, they, and, and ACT UP was formed mostly by artists and people in kind of marketing and advertising and, um, and all the areas where they knew how to sell things. They, and they decided that they were going to sell AIDS activism the way they sold, the way a new Madonna record would be sold. And, um, and, and they knew how to do that because they were selling the new Madonna record. You know, they, they were the same people. And they used the language of advertising. They used the language of art. They, and, and, and they inflamed and, and informed in really powerful ways. Um, I talk about it in the book. And there's, there's pictures in the book um, of some of this art because it was so essential, really, to, under, to helping the community understand 
what was possible and what they could do. Thanks. And also uh, filmmakers, like, you know, art, visual artists, but filmmakers, which right. resulted in having a lot of archival footage, filmmakers that not only were capturing what was happening at the time, and then we had archivists that were, like, holding on to them and preserving so that, that it could be used. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, when I was making this film, I, I, I was, there were four filmmakers who allowed me to take apart their films, which was, you know, a, a brave thing for them to do so that I could use some of their footage in my film. But they... The, there, there were many, many, many films that were made during that period. A lot of them angry, a lot of them powerful, a lot of them emotional, um, and uh, and all of them, you know, aiming to try to do, you know, do away with this problem. Um, and in How to Survive a Plague, the documentary, there's there is an artist who, and filmmaker um, uh, who was f- filming his own life and his own performance pieces. Ray Navarro, um, and including his uh, performance less than a week before he died, um, where he was performing for the camera in a way to try to understand or make sense of what had happened to him and what, his, what, what the fates held for him. And it's just a, an incredibly moving moment, but it's an artist's moment, um, and it's the creation of art to, to make that clear. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry. Well, I'm not quite sure. I just um, your film is wonderful and um, very informative uh, of the, those years. I moved here from New York in '89, so I remember some of those early years. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insight. We have, as the first woman asked, um, there's a lot of trauma going on about the current election and um, the situation coming, and we have a president-elect who has no AIDS plan and has not mentioned AIDS, and this is going back to those years when Reagan didn't mention AIDS. So um, I wonder if you have any insight uh, about that that whole quagmire. I mean, so much good work is being done around a cure. So much good work has been done around um, finding new drugs. There's a, you know, always something new coming down the pipe uh, over the last tw- 10 years or so. And so I'm wondering what's going to happen to the AIDS funding here and internationally and if you have any um, inside knowledge as a, as a reporter that you might have heard or know through the community. I don't think anybody knows. I mean, those yeah. people are bizarre. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, um, as, as reviled as um, George W. Bush is and rightfully so. Um, it was it was he who began the campaign to get these drugs out to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why he did it, um, and I've tried to piece that together. I've talked to people who were mm-hmm. in the room when he came up with the idea, but right. pardon me. Right. But it could have been a religious thing, um, uh, but I don't I don't have any evidence that the, that the religious right was was uh, lobbying him. Um, but so he starts this thing, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency mm-hmm. Fund for AIDS Relief, and um, and was more responsible than any other individual for actually, mm-hmm. you know, pumping uh, access to these drugs mm-hmm. out to the world and beginning that campaign. Yeah. Um, joined by mm-hmm. by the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and by the yeah. Clintons and others to um, to bring the price down. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, and that was remarkable. And Obama kept that going. Mm-hmm. There was some criticism about how he handled it, mm-hmm. but um, now I don't imagine that that'll continue at all. We've got 18 million people now, as I said earlier, who are on the drugs. Um, just a remarkable figure um, mm-hmm. that half the people with HIV in the world today mm-hmm. are are being treated. Yeah. Um, and will that continue? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. I mean, I would guess that that's going to be one of our real casualties. I don't know what's going to happen domestically. I just know it's going to be bad. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he's just not appointing anybody to positions that have any experience in those positions. Yeah. Um, and sometimes have only experience in, in just the opposite. Thank you. I've got a question over here. Oh, hi. Yeah. Uh, I know that you have your book for sale, and books are wonderful for people that are wonderful readers. You also have a film, and I often see films that are produced, but they're somehow lost in the 
filmmakers, are you, do you have this film for sale? I am a retired teacher, but there are gay-straight alliances in schools throughout the country right. that could benefit from uh, seeing your film. And what plans do you have to make it available for that kind of use? Uh, thank you for the question, and um, I would love for the film to get into the, to, to those schools. It's uh, the, f the film has a, an educational distributor. It's also, and I know what you mean about how some documentaries, a lot of films just are, are become, you know, impossible to find. I try to make this film impossible um, to, to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Netflix. It's on you know iTunes. It's it's everywhere, and um, and you you could you know, buy the DVD right off, you know, Amazon or um, whatever. But the educational distribution has been building real campaigns, mostly for college campuses because of the length of the film. Um, it's also on PBS, so every once in a while at 2 in the morning you'll find it. <laughs> and, um, and I know that high school kids are up at 2 in the morning, so maybe they'll find it too. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a wonderful film, and it reminds me of how young so many people were at the time of activism. It's a, a very young group for the most part. So two things. One, I want to put in a plug for a project that's underway now in Seattle. You talk about the importance of accurately recording the history uh, of HIV-AIDS in our community, and it's called the AIDS Legacy Memorial Project. It is funded by the city. Uh, it is being um, planned by the Museum of History and Industry, and we have staff for that. And we want to have a very strong community involvement, diverse community involvement in planning for this history uh, memorial project. And the artist reminded me of the importance of having art as a part of this. So uh, Paul Feldman is here. He's a staff uh, for our planning project. I'm doing this on a voluntary basis myself. And I think Paul would be happy to take uh, names and contact information for anyone who wants to help us uh, on this AIDS Legacy Memorial Project because we're going to need a lot of community support. Secondly, I have a question for you. You talked about the, uh, the importance of accuracy of this history, and I quickly scanned it, and I'm particularly interested in the reporting on Gaetan Dugas, who uh, is described sometimes as patient zero. Uh, what research did you do to ensure that your reporting on Gaetan is accurate? Um, all right, so, uh, and thank you for the announcement. It's great to know about that. Um, all right, so do you all know the history of patient zero? Probably a lot of nod, nodding heads. So, uh, and this is Randy Schultz again, and the band played on. Um, uh, he discovered an early um, epidemi epidemiological study that took place in California that tried to identify um, the relationship between various people who were sick, um, and it was an attempt to try to prove that whatever this disease was, it was still called gay-related immune deficiency syndrome at the time, that it was communicable, which was only uh, if, um, hypothesized at the time. And so they drew a map of all these folks, and they connected them for kind of sexual partners. And, um, uh, and the, one of the most... Um, uh, I was going to say prolific. There must be a sexier word. Um, uh, was this really um, handsome guy named? Wait, wait. But we're gonna call words fuckable. You know, I don't know. Um, so uh, was Gaetan Dugas, who's just this kind of um, crazy, beautiful um, uh, French Canadian uh, figure. He was a, a flight attendant, and um, um, and uh, he had, you know, boyfriends and assignations in all of his ports of call. Um, and Randy uh, cast him as patient zero, like the, the, the person who brought uh, the epidemic to North America um, and really uh, demonized him in, in really direct ways um, and then built an entire campaign to sell his book around this patient zero myth. And it really was a myth. And um, so I went back to try to unknit that and... Um, uh, and that's what you were referring to in that. In that. Um, since I finished working on my book, a scientific study came out just two weeks ago that, um, that looked at his blood and his stored blood and the stored blood of the other people who he was considered to be the hub for. And, um, 
and they didn't share the same uh, viral genome. So they weren't, they were not related uh, by virus. So he, he didn't infect them. He didn't bring HIV to, the, to North America. But he, um, he was kind of chased across North America, and he was um, chased to Vancouver, where people were trying to um, stop him from having sex with people. And, you know, it was, it, he didn't have a happy last couple of months to, to his life. And it's, it feels good now that people are going back and remembering his name and trying to kind of clear his name. And, um, and I try to play a small part of that in my book. It was, everybody remembered his name. See, that's what, one of the reasons why I think everybody put his name down. It was Gaetan Dugas. Um, and uh, it's just such a you know, singular name that it really stood out in people's minds. And, um, and he became the target of a lot of suspicion. He's really the only kind of demonized AIDS patient from those early years. Um, there's a lot of you know, AIDS criminalization laws in this country now that demonize people who are currently sick. And those are laws that say, in many states, that say if you have HIV you, you, and, and have sex with somebody without disclosing, that it's in many cases a felony. And there are people in jail for long periods of time for, for this, and here as well. And... Um, um, and it doesn't matter if you had safe sex, or it doesn't matter if you were undetectable and, and incapable of transmitting a virus. It, uh, it, none of that stuff matters. It's just the disclosure. And so um, that demonizing is still going on. Time for a couple more questions. We have some more there. Hi. Oh, um, hey. I'm curious uh, on your thoughts about the state of education, public school education, related to both the history of AIDS and kind of more from the, you know, scientific perspective. Um, I was just talking to my friend. I'm 26, and I don't really remember learning a lot about this history in school. Um, so I'm cur- curious about kind of where it is now and and where that gap is to where it should be. Well, you're right that there, it's, it's, it's just non-existent. Um, and, uh, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I guess, you know, I remember... Uh, growing up and not really understanding understanding what the Vietnam War was because I was just uh, two-thirds of a generation too young to have lived it and um, and it had ne- it had not crawled its way into the curriculum yet um, but this has been a long time we're now you know what, what do we I'll do the math 16 years out um, f- from the end of the plague and 35 years out from the beginning of the plague and it's still not being taught. And, you know, I think that's, a, that's part of a larger problem. I don't, I don't think uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender history is taught at all. And, um, you know, Larry Kramer, who is, um, you know, a well-known um, nut <laughs> in the best possible way, um, has been calling for, you know, AIDS history to be taught, even on college campuses. And, and all, all we ever get are, like, queer studies, you know, these theoretical um, yeah, exegeses of, I don't know, whatever. I can't make sense of queer studies. But w- so, you know, there are no, like, gay history books. There's no tool for teaching this. And I think it's part of our responsibility, those of us who are in the, you know, history business, to start making those. Uh, thank you for your uh, brave and wonderful work thank you. At, in helping us I'll learn more about what we should know. Uh, I wonder if you care to wade into the intramural uh, culture wars and uh, talk about Andrew Sullivan's review of your book and the responses to Andrew Sullivan's review of your book. (laughs) This this seems like a very well-versed crowd. (laughs) All right, how many people know Andrew Sullivan's um, main crime? (laughs) <laughs> well, the, the one that he's not forgiven for is um, having written in 1996, right after the pills came out, having written a cover story for the New York Times magazine called When Plagues End. And um, he was vilified by the movement for having written that because uh, people were still dying. And, um, and there was no... At, even by the time he wrote, there was no sure... 
understanding of what those pills meant. Like, what were they going to do? And could we take them forever? And, um, and, and, and would you know, the life expectancy be changed from, at that point, it was like 28 months post-infection. You know, could we really alter that? And, um, and he took a huge hit for it, and the magazine took a hit for it, and the Times took a hit for it, and Adam Moss, who's the editor of the Times, is, is hounded by people who are still upset with him for having written that, having published that piece. Andrew Sullivan revu- reviewed my book in the New York Times um, this past Sunday, and uh, a lot of the comments, as you point out, are not about my brilliant work, <laughs> but, but about his kind of original sin. And um, uh, so that's the history. Um, I was one of the detractors in 96. I was one of the people, I sat on a panel with Adam Moss, the editor, and talked about um, the danger that, um, that he courted by publishing that piece um, one of the things I was worried about was that it would shut down all discussion about the, the plague, and all discussion did shut down. It became, I, as, a, as a science writer and an AIDS writer, it became increasingly difficult for me to write about the disease because I couldn't get anybody to publish it. Um, I don't think Andrew Sullivan did that, um, uh, and I don't think the New York Times Magazine did that, and, uh, and I don't think his, his piece did that. Um, I've gone back to reread his piece now a number of times, and I think it's brilliant. It's, um, I think he saw something that nobody yet saw. He saw what he saw this kind of strange uh, emotional drama of going from living within a mass death experience and suddenly having the possibility of survival and ongoingness, and he didn't know what to make of it. And that was what his essay was about, like, what do you make of it? And I, and I took that as a challenge for writing How to Survive a Plague, to look at the condition of survival, and to go back to other mass death experiences, and to see what those lessons were that have been passed down to us, and, and, and apply them to AIDS, and then look to AIDS for the lessons that might be applied for the future. Um, uh, and, and he was the first person to propose that field of inquiry. So I'm, I'm grateful to him for that and, and for the, the rave. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. David France spoke at Town Hall Seattle on November 28th. His new book is How to Survive a Plague, the inside story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.